You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. We are going to be in Mark chapter 10, so if you want to go ahead and turn there, that would be helpful. Uh, You might also mark uh, Matthew 19 and 1 Corinthians 7 for easy access. You're going to need to be able to flip to both of those two places. And so we have been in a set of sermons called Issues. So if you're just kind of, this is your first time to be at Stonegate, um, welcome to a, a hard set of sermons. So we have been dealing with multiple things. We've dealt with singleness. We've dealt with gluttony. Um, we've dealt with celebration. We've dealt with preaching the good news to yourself. Um, this morning, we are dealing with what I think is, in 15 years of pastoral ministry, probably the most difficult and painful issue to address from a stage. The most painful and the most difficult in 15 years of, of doing this is the issue of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And that's the issue we're tackling today. Now, before we jump in, I I think it is good for everyone in the room to acknowledge that there are few things in life as difficult as divorce to a human soul. There are few things in life that leave the sort of deep, sensitive, and painful wounds inside of the heart of a human being as divorce does. Listen to one pastor describe this. He says, for many of you who have walked through a divorce and are now single or remarried or whose parents were divorced or some other loved one, the mere mention of the word carries a huge weight of sorrow and loss and tragedy and disappointment and anger and regret and guilt. That there are some, when you heard the word divorce, And you just contemplated in that flash moment of, we're about to spend a morning talking about these sorts of things, that it just sent a chill down your spine. Just saying the word has a way of reopening a very sensitive wound. He goes on to say, few things are more painful than divorce. It cuts to the depths of personhood unlike any other relational gash. It cuts to the depths of personhood Unlike any other relational gash, it is emotionally more heart-wrenching than the death of a spouse. Death is usually clean pain. Divorce is usually unclean pain. In other words, the enormous loss of a spouse in death is compounded in divorce. The upheaval of life is immeasurable. The sense of failure and guilt and fear can torture the soul. The loneliness is not like the loneliness of being a widow or a widower or a person who has never been married. It is in a class by itself. A sense that the future has been devastated can be all-consuming. And then there's the agonizing place of children. Parents hope against hope that the scars will not cripple their children or ruin future marriages someday. Tensions over custody and financial support deepen the wounds. And add to all that that this happens in America to over four out of every ten married couples. Now before we do anything else today, we just need to feel that paragraph. Especially for, for those in the room who have not experienced divorce personally. We need to just take a moment to allow our souls to feel how deep, how sensitive and how painful that gash is in many in the room. 
And for those in the room who, who that's you, man, I'm just praying that the Lord would pour out fresh grace into those wounds today. That as those wounds are, are opened and poked on, that you would feel a deep sense of the Spirit's ministry in your life this morning as the good news of Jesus is applied in those particular little places. And I think it's just worthwhile to note that, um, that those wounds affect children in deep, deep ways as well. And for the first time in the United States of America, the minority of children are now going to grow up in homes without their mom and dad in that home. The, the, the minority now grow up with mom and dad there. I mean, that those wounds are so deep in the lives of children as well. So that leads to the question of, so why in the world would we talk about that? If it's that painful, and I know as a pastor, just, you know, having a morning where we're addressing that unlocks so much pain that people would rather just keep suppressed in their life. Why are we talking about this? So let me give you two brief reasons really quickly. Number one, that the first reason why I feel like we have to talk about these issues here is because most Christians are biblically illiterate about, like, what does the Bible say about divorce and remarriage and these sorts of things? There is a gaping hole in the theology of many Christians in this particular area. And it's not just like many Christians, it's many pastors there's a gaping hole in this area. Listen to Jay Adams, he's a counselor. Listen to what he says about even this, this theological hole in the lives of many pastors. He says it this way. He says, I work, so he's a counselor, and he's saying, I work with pastors and have done so for 14 years. I know most of the problems that pastors face. And I know that large on their agenda of areas for study is the whole territory of divorce and remarriage. Pastors as a whole, he says, simply do not know how to handle the naughty questions that are being called, they are being called upon weekly to face. And he goes on, I'm not referring to liberal ministers, but to conservative, Bible-believing, and Bible-preaching men. And from my experience, that is true. So one of the reasons that I think most people grow up in church and, uh, you know, have been there for a long time and have never heard a pastor bring clarity to these issues, never heard a pastor preach on these issues, is mainly because pastors don't have clarity on the issue, which is a problem. And if pastors don't have clarity on the issue and, and they're dealing with these things all the time, what about a, just a normal person that's going to be inside of a church that the sort of ambiguity they would feel in this issue. So you can just see how that compounding problem works of just a theological gap in many of our lives when it comes to this particular issue of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Now you put that, that biblical illiteracy part on this side, and now put this on the other, the second reason on the other side. As a church family, don't you agree that we want to be helpful to couples who are experiencing those deep, dark, desperate days of like, what happens when two sinners you know, become one flesh and live in one house together, that we actually as a church family want to be helpful to marriages. We want that, don't we? We want to have a church family who is proactively helping marriages. Now, hear what I'm about to say. Biblical illiteracy or a theological gap in regards to divorce and, and remarriage, all, all of that over here, works in a, like a direct relationship to our, our ability to be helpful to marriages. So that if we have a gap in theology with what the Bible says about divorce and remarriage, then we're going to have a gap in actually being able to help marriages. We can't, we can't help marriages if we don't know what the Bible says. All we're going to be doing is offering our fickle little opinions about it. And we need more than that if we're going to be helpful. 
So if we want to be helpful to marriage, marriages, it means that we've got to know what the Bible says. See, to be helpful in marriages, and listen, we're all counseling marriages. There's not a person in here who is immune from the effects of, of just marriage, divorce, and remarriage. That whole, you know, conglomerate of things. Every person in here feels that. It may be a mom or a dad, a son and a daughter, your own life, an aunt, an uncle, a friend, a neighbor. But we're all counseling these things. And if we want to be helpful, we've got to have two things. We've got to know what the Bible says, like what truth is, according to the Bible, and be able to confront with truth. And at the same time, we've got to know what the good news of Jesus says about this, and we get to comfort with grace. We've got to have both of those two things working in our hearts and minds if we're going to be helpful to people. And we want to be helpful to people. So with that said, we need to think this issue through. That's the goal of the morning. So Mark 10 is going to be home base for us. It's going to be home and just trying to give us a sense of what does the Bible say in regards to these issues. Mark 10. I want you to notice four things, see four primary things in this passage. And here's the first one. I want you to see God's view of marriage. God's view of marriage. So let's look at Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 2. And I want you to see that the primary point of this passage is not to address issues of divorce and remarriage or any of those things. The primary point of the passage is for Jesus to hold up what marriage is really for. The, the point and purpose of marriage. That's the primary point of the passage. Okay, so watch how it plays out here. Verse 2. Valentine read this passage a minute ago. Let me just pull out a few parts of it here. Starting in verse 2. <clears throat> and the Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, they asked a question. So their purpose here is not trying to get information that would be helpful for them. Their purpose is to trap Jesus. And this was the trap question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Jesus answered them, what did Moses command you? And they responded by quoting Deuteronomy 24. They quoted and said this, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And then Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you that commandment or this commandment. But, and here he's about to go back and quote Genesis 1 and 2. But from the beginning of creation, here's the quote, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Now here's what I want you to see about what Jesus is doing in this text. They have come to Jesus trying to get Jesus to clarify every reason and every way they can get out of a marriage. Jesus, in this passage, the primary thing he's doing is holding up the view of marriage and, and God's view of marriage and saying, let me give you every reason to stay in your marriage. Now see, I want you to see and sense that. They're coming saying, will you please show us all the ways out? And Jesus is saying, I'm going to redefine the agenda. I'm going to set the agenda. And here's the agenda I'm setting in this passage. I want you to see and recalibrate your hearts to every reason you should stay in this marriage. Let me remind you of what marriage is for and what marriage is doing and why God created marriage. Let me remind you of those things. And if you want to just condense what Jesus is saying down into a couple of thoughts, I think Jesus is reminding him. These Pharisees, he's reminding them that marriage is God's doing. If you look in Genesis 2 and, and when God instituted marriage, God is doing all the acting. God created the woman. 
God walks the woman down the aisle. He officiates the first wedding. When they become one flesh, it's God that's making them one flesh. It's God that takes two individual and distinct people and join them in a one flesh sort of a way where they're no longer two, but they're one. That is all God's doing. God created marriage. God defined marriage. I think it would be appropriate to, to summarize and to kind of lead to the conclusion if God defined marriage, we would be very unwise to redefine marriage in the way we want it defined. That this is God's thing. God, that marriage is God's doing. It's God's creation. But it's not just his creation. It's not just his doing. Marriage is for the display of God. Marriage is primarily about God, not about you. My, the marriage that God has gifted me is not primarily for me or about me. It is primarily for and about God. There's things that I get out of my marriage by God's grace, but it's not primarily about me. It's primarily about God. Now, this is Paul's point in Ephesians 5, verse 32, when Paul says, let me kind of lift up the curtain of marriage and show you what is going on in your marriage. Paul says, this is a profound mystery, but your marriage, marriage in general, the institution of marriage is meant to be a display of the gospel. It is caught up in something about Christ and his church. This is his point in Ephesians 5, that this is what marriage is for. See, if you're married in the room, you have been swept up into something that is so much bigger than you are. It's so much bigger than I am. We've been swept into something so much bigger. If you're a man and God has gifted you with a marriage, if that's you in the room, God has gifted you that marriage so that you could show an accurate, truthful picture of the world or to the world of the dying love of Jesus for you. That's why he's given you a marriage. If you're a, a wife in the room, the reason that God has given you a marriage is so that you can paint a faithful picture of what the church's response should be to the dying love of Jesus. This is what our marriages are meant to do. Unlike any other relationship that you will ever be in, marriage is meant to be a visible representation of the invisible love of God as seen in Jesus. That's what your marriage is for. This, if you're married, this is the, the primary reason God has gifted you a marriage is so that you could tell the truth about Jesus. And, and this is Jesus' primary point in this passage. He's trying to lift that up and show them this is what it's for. I'm not, I'm not overly interested in giving you every way out. I'm showing you why it is that you should stay in because it's about telling the truth about Jesus. You have been given that opportunity in your marriage to speak truth, to show a true picture of the never stopping, always pursuing love of God as seen in Jesus. Now let's get about doing that, he's saying. Now let me just take a moment to apply this. If you're married in the room, this is the question that, that I think this point of the sermon should lead us toward. If you're, if you're a man and you're married, am I showing and displaying an accurate picture of Jesus in the way that I'm loving and pursuing and cherishing and nourishing and creating an environment where my wife can flourish in the way that I'm doing that? If you're a lady in the room and God has gifted you with a marriage, are you in the way that you would show honor to your husband, in the way that you would pursue and love your husband, are you showing an accurate picture of how the church should be responding to Jesus? And that's not dependent upon your husband being Jesus. It's dependent upon you looking to Jesus and then you getting to respond to your husband in a way that would show the truth about Jesus. Is that happening if you're married? 
If not, I'm just praying that the Lord would begin to soften our hearts this morning and the Spirit begin to press these things in to get our hearts softened us for repentance to happen this morning. So this is God's view of marriage. Now, we also see in this passage God's view of divorce. And I want to make just a few general observations that we see in this passage. The first one is that divorce is a result of sin. So look at how Jesus talks about this in verse 3 of Mark 10. In verse 3, Jesus answers them. So they've just asked the question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Jesus responds by saying, what did Moses command you? They say, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Jesus responded, here's the reason Moses did that. Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. So Jesus is showing us here in these couple of verses that divorce is not the way the world is supposed to be. If you've ever been around a divorce, if you've ever seen that thing play out, you would agree, we would all agree that it's not the way the world is supposed to be. It's the result of sin in this universe. That's the reason there is such a thing as divorce. Now let me be really precise and clear with language here, and I want you to make sure you understand the nuance of the next sentence. Not every divorce is sinful, but every divorce is the result of sin. Are are we understanding the difference? Not every divorce would be sinful, but every every divorce is the result of, of us living in a fallen world affected by sin. Maybe we could say it this way. If there were no sin in the universe, and aren't we gonna be so glad when that day arrives? That's gonna be a great day, isn't it? If there were no such thing as sin in the universe, there would be no such thing as divorce in the universe. It's a result of sin. Secondly, divorce is hated by God. This is straight out of Malachi chapter two. I hate divorce, says the Lord. You know, in our home, I don't know if your home is prone to this, but we have a seven, a five, and a four-year-old in our house. In our home, our kids in particular, are very prone to using very big, big words to describe very small, small things. So it would not be an abnormal moment for us to be sitting down at the table and for one of our kids to say, I hate fill in the blank. And it's one of the, you know, one of the food groups on the table. Something on the table, they're, they're using a massive word. I think the last time it came up, it was Hannah saying, I hate peas. I'm not eating it. There's no way I'm doing it. It was that moment. Now, I just can't let that go. And so in every one of those little moments, I'm trying to help our kids see that big words are used for big things and small small words are used for small things. And if you get into a habit of using big words for small things, there's going to be a moment where a big thing's happening and you don't have a word left to describe that big thing. You've already used them on all your small things. So if you use a big word like hate to describe something small like peace, you're, you're using a lot of your ammunition and words to describe something really small. But when we get to big moments, like we're talking about sin, we're talking about Satan, we're talking about those things, then you can throw every big word you want to throw at it. You can hate those things all day long. I I was cracking up a couple months after that conversation. Caleb got in the car and he said, Daddy, I want to tell you something. Can I say this? I hate sin. And I'm like, man, I do too. That's the way you use that word hate. Let's do some more of that. And so, but it's big words for big things. Now, I think God is equally careful with words. He doesn't use big words for small things. He uses big words for big things. And he is using a big word, hate, 
to describe a big thing, divorce. Now, why is it that the Lord would do that? Why would he use that big of a word to describe divorce and put divorce in that big of a category? I mean, we could probably talk about the nuances of that all day, but I'll just give you a couple of of things off the top. You know, if, if you understand the purpose of marriage, that marriage is meant to tell the truth about God. And when marriages don't live up to that, when marriages break, it is tearing asunder the picture that marriage is meant to display. That that if marriage is meant to display God, when marriages break, it's telling a lie about God. This is why the Bible would look at it and use, or God would look at it and use such big words to describe it. Because every time marriages break, it is telling a lie about God. So so that's one reason I I think that a big word is used. Another reason I think a big word is used is because God knows the consequences of divorce. God knows that there are few things in a human soul that will do such deep, damaging work as divorce that would impart such deep emotional scars as divorce. So in light of that, I I just want to take a moment, and for those in the room who are considering divorce, I just want you to hear the Lord in Malachi 2 say, man, I, I hate divorce. I hate how it tells a lie about me. I hate the consequences of it. I hate that that people believe that it's going to solve their problems when it's just going to create another set of problems. I hate when people believe that it's just not going to be that big a deal in the lives of those around them when, when you're sending ripples into generations that you'll never live long enough to see in that moment. I hate all that. Just praying the Lord would remind us of that and just... We would hear him say that. And in the middle of that, we would just, we would hear his voice pleading with us, don't do it. Hang in there, pray for miracles. We would hear the voice of God saying that to us today. So divorce is a result of sin. Divorce is hated by God. And here's a third thing about divorce. Divorce is regulated by God. Now this is when it gets to be a little naughty, so you need to like, Right now, put, put your, like, your thinking cap on and you need to go on this journey with me because you need to know what we're about to cover here in the next few minutes. In the Bible, marriage is meant to be a visible picture of the invisible and dying love of Jesus for us. It's meant to be the visible picture of that to the world. Now, even in saying that, it does seem, and I'm using a word that is intentionally inserting some ambiguity into the equation, it does seem that the Bible gives Two grounds to make divorce permissible. Two grounds. Let let me work through those very briefly. The first ground is adultery. Now, you might want to flip over to to Matthew chapter 19. Flip over to Matthew 19. This is where we see this play out. That it does seem that this is one of the grounds that the Bible uses to um, make divorce permissible. Matthew 19. Okay, let me give you the context that we're seeing when we get to Matthew 19. Virtually everyone in the first century world believed that there were appropriate means to make divorce permissible, that certain things could happen and divorce would be permissible when those things happened. The debate was over what were the things. So everyone assumed that, that, that it was permissible, but the raging debate was what made it permissible. And the debate revolved around an Old Testament passage, Deuteronomy 24. I'm gonna put it on the screen for you where you'll see it. It revolved around this passage. When a man takes a wife and marries her, 
If then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. Some indecency, that's the debatable words. Because he found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house. So the question is, what does some indecency mean? There were broadly two schools of thought that aligned behind two different rabbis in first century world. The first rabbi was, was Rabbi Shimon. And he was the more conservative, the minority position that said this, some indecency meant some sort of sexual sin in the context of marriage. That's the some indecency. Then there's another uh, rabbi, his name was Hillel. He had the majority position back in this day. He, he was where most of the people stood. And he believed that it was anything a husband found that was undesirable in a lady. So anything. Even to the point of, she miscooked a meal? All right then. We're, we're, we're to the line. There, there's grounds. So that's where that camp went. Now it's that, that you know, context that informs what we're reading in Matthew 19. It's that context of what is some indecency that gets us here? Now watch how Matthew um, 19 reads. The question is posed in a little bit different way in Matthew 19. In, in Mark 3, it's, you know, is it ever lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now watch how it's said in verse 3 of, Ma of Matthew uh, 19. Matthew 19, 3, the question is asked like this. Is it lawful to divorce for any cause? So you can tell that they're automatically probably siding with Hillel. And they're asking, can a man just look at anything that he doesn't like and just say, yes, I'm divorcing, I've got grounds. Is that okay? Then you get down to verse 9, and Jesus answers the question directly. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, and Matthew adds this clause that Mark does not add. Whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. So Matthew is talking about two believers, and in the context of two believers in a marriage, one has sexual sin that goes down, adultery that goes down in the context of marriage. And it would seem that Jesus is saying in this passage that that can so sever the marriage covenant that it would make divorce permissible. Now, notice a couple of words here. It doesn't require it. It makes it permissible. Okay, now, let me take... 15 seconds and just give the warning of this. I'm not going to spell this out in this go around, but let me just give the warning. There are many Bible-believing men and women who do not believe Matthew 19 is okaying a divorce in the context of marriage. And I'm not going to get into all the reasons. I'm going to post some things this week that will help you work through that. But I, I want to just say this about it. I don't think they're totally unfounded reasons. I think there's reasons that they get there and they're not unfounded. Some of my favorite people in church history and alive today fall in that camp, okay? So I just wanna give some validity to that. I am sympathetic toward that view. I think some of our elders will actually hold that view. Okay, so but I wanna just kind of give the, the nuts and bolts for us as a church family. Where do we officially fall? We officially fall in the majority of like where church history has fallen. To, to look at Matthew 19 and not to believe that that's grounds for divorce, I am sympathetic and I think some people get there because there's actually plausible reasons, but I'm not so sympathetic that I would look at our church and say, that's where we're gonna fall. On an official position, we are saying that Matthew 19 would provide one grounds for a permissible divorce. It doesn't require it. It would never be most desirable. Like if you've got two Christians, it's never most desirable. Divorce is never inevitable. 
It's never those two things. It'd be most desirable to see reconciliation happen. It'd be most desirable to see Jesus redeem a marriage. That would be most desirable, but it does seem that Jesus is giving one grounds for divorce. Now, let me just say this as clear as I can. Just because he is making it permissible doesn't mean that it is inevitable. Doesn't mean it's most desirable. Reconciliation is always most desirable. I love what one um, counselor, Jay Adams says. He says, since all believers have the word and the spirit, they, they have all they, since they have the word and the spirit, they have all that they need to bring about not only reconciliation, but in the future, a marriage that sings. I hear that. Since all believers have the word and the spirit, they have all that they need to bring about, even in the midst of the darkest, worst moments, to bring about not only reconciliation, but in the future, a marriage that sings. Regardless of how deep and dark and desperate and ugly the whole of sin has gone in your marriage, if we have a God who has parted the Red Sea to rescue his rebellious people Israel, if we have a God that can do that, we also have a God that can do whatever it takes to redeem your marriage. We have a God like that. And it's always most desirable to see God do that. So that's grounds one, adultery. Here is grounds number two. The second, the second grounds that it would seem the Bible would give to make divorce permissible. The second ground is abandonment. Now, the relevant passage here is 1 Corinthians 7. So if you want to flip there, you can. It should be up on the screen for you as well. 1 Corinthians 7 is the applicable passage here. This is starting in verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 7. Can't deal with the whole chapter. The whole chapter is good. You should read it in the context, but I can't do all that in our time frame this morning. 1 Corinthians 7, starting in verse 10, says, To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The, the wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. So that is just where Mark leaves us. He's agreeing with Mark in this moment. Then he goes on, verse 12. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord. So when he's saying, I, not the Lord, he is saying, Jesus did not address what I'm about to address in particular. So I'm about to address it. It doesn't mean when he says, I, not the Lord, that this is not scripture. Paul is speaking authoritative scripture in this moment. He just means that Jesus didn't you know, address, directly address this issue. So to the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Verse 15 is the key verse. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Let me give you the context of this passage. Context is the Corinthian church was a church plant in a very pagan area. There weren't like people following Jesus there. So they plant a church and all of a sudden Jesus begins to rescue people and redeem people. So now you have marriages where both of them were unbelievers and they got married. And all of a sudden, Jesus starts saving people, and now you have one of them that's, that's following Jesus and the other one that's not following Jesus. You have one that's a believer and one that's an unbeliever. So the question is, what do you do? 
We know, Paul clarifies, that a, a, you know, a believer should not proactively enter a marriage with an unbeliever. But what do you do when you are both unbelievers and you find yourself in the position of being unequally yoked? You're a believer, they're not a believer. What do you do then? And Paul's principle is like the principle of the passage, remain as you are. That's what you should do. So if you're a believer and you have an unbelieving spouse and they're agreeable to, to stay in the marriage, you pursue them. You lay your, your life down in love for them. You make visible in the way you're loving them the invisible and dying love of Jesus for them. You make all of that visible in the way that you relate to them. You honor them. You serve them. You do all of those things in hope that and in a confident hope that at some point Jesus is going to rescue them. At some point, Jesus is going to use your marriage to show them the dying love of Jesus, and they're going to be in on that. So, so he's saying that's what you do. But then he plays a scenario of what if that unbelieving spouse says, hey, you're a Christian, then I'm out. I'm no longer staying in this marriage. In that scenario, Paul is saying, if you're the believing spouse and you've laid your life down, but even over the top of you laying your life down to love them, they still want out and they're demanding out then if that's the case, you would be free in that moment. That that would be a permissible uh, ground and a means for divorce in the Bible. It would seem that that's what the Bible is saying here. So, in church history, the widest swath today of people who believe the Bible and are trying to follow the Bible and are trying to distill what is the Bible saying about this issue, I think this is the, the majority position, is that there are two grounds for divorce. When two people are believers that adultery can so sever the marriage covenant that it can make divorce permissible. It doesn't require it, but it can make it permissible. And the second ground are when it's a believer and an unbeliever, when the unbelieving spouse, not the believing spouse, when the unbelieving spouse demands out that that can be the second means for divorce. Those two things. Now, let's just have a moment here together. Think about everything that doesn't fit in those two categories. And we can play the long list. She's a moron. He's an idiot. I don't get along with him. We have nothing in common. They're a terrible wife. He's a terrible husband. I just don't, I don't like them anymore. We've got irreconcilable differences. They have really hurt me. I cannot forgive them. I mean, just think about the long list of things that those two grounds for divorce does not cover. And think about how countercultural it is to think like the Bible thinks in this moment. Now, I want to I want to address just one really really naughty issue. So hang with me for about 2 minutes here. And here's the naughty issue. Naughty as in complex, that is. Probably should have picked a different word. <clears throat> Here is one issue that makes this complex. I, I don't think the Bible un, untangles and unpacks everything that could be considered abandonment and how that whole thing plays itself out. I think there is a spirit of it that's there, but I don't think it gets into the weeds and like, how do you apply that to the millions of things that like you encounter in these moments? And just in 15 years of ministry, man, the issues are so complex and nuanced. It is, it is gut-wrenching work to try to take what the Bible says and all the things it doesn't say and try to press it into moments. And so I, I want to just untangle one of these moments. And let's just use uh, like long-term abuse as a for instance in this. 
If you are in, the, in a marriage right now where there is physical abuse going on, I just want you to hear me say this. You need to be safe. Like you don't need to go back home today and put yourself in a situation that is not safe for you. You need to get help, and part of getting help means you get out of that unsafe environment right now. It is not okay to stay in that. You need to let somebody know about that before you leave today. So, so let's just play this scenario out. With that said, let's just play this out. Let's say that a spouse is um, hard-hearted in their sin over a prolonged period of time, and it is high-handed sin. You could just maybe put abuse in there as a for instance. It is high-handed sin that is doing great harm to everyone in that home. Could there be a moment where although they are not demanding a divorce with their lips, could there be a moment where they are demanding their, a divorce and in essence abandoning with their actions? Could that ever play out? Now, I wanna be so cautious and I want you to feel the caution that I feel in even raising that scenario. I, I feel so cautious in saying yes to that because that is, I've never been there in 15 years of ministry. But I would not rule out the scenario that a person can be high-handed and hard-hearted in their sin for so long that they are abandoning their marriage while they're kind of around their marriage. I wouldn't rule it out as if that could never happen. I guess I'm saying that there, there could be moments where we would be around the table trying to ask for discernment in that. We would always lean for perseverance. We would always lean into reconciliation. But, but we would get around the table and work through that. It would require church discipline, among many other things, a prolonged period of time. But could that scenario ever play itself out like that? I think maybe to that, potentially. I wouldn't rule it out as a, as a never. So with that said, We've got God's view of marriage. The point of this passage is, look at every reason to stay in. This is how God looks at marriage. We've got um, God's view of divorce, that, that it's, he hates it. It's the result of sin. But in some ways, it seems that he regulates it in providing two grounds that could make it permissible. Now, let's deal with the third part, God's view of remarriage. Look at Mark 10, verse 10. Mark 10, verse 10. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. There would be some who read a passage like this, and Matthew 19 would also fit into the same grid, um, Luke 16, these sort of passages, and conclude that there is no remarriage after divorce of any kind. No remarriage. Bible-believing, love the Bible, are, are honestly at the Bible trying to figure out what does God say in the Bible who come to that conclusion. It's the minority view, but there are some who get there, and they've got plausible reasons why they get there. We would fall more in the majority view, and here's how I would describe the majority view. This would be our position as a church family. The, the majority view would be that there are some divorces that would okay a remarriage. Here's how I would summarize how that tension works itself out. That when, when the situation is, is biblical grounds for divorce, so, so you are divorced, but you had biblical permission. It was permissible under the two, two biblical grounds. So biblical grounds for divorce, if that's the scenario, would give biblical grounds for a remarriage. That makes sense? So when divorce is biblically permissible, then remarriage will be biblically permissible. See the, the, how it works out? You have to have one to have the other. When you have a biblically permissible divorce, it would turn the key for a biblically permissible remarriage. So let's just take our two grounds really briefly. You have two Christians, 
And Matthew 19, it would seem that the Bible is saying one ground for divorce would be adultery or some sort of, you know, sexual sin in the context of marriage. And it would seem to me that that exception clause of, you know, don't divorce except in this issue, you can't divorce except, here would be the one, you know, permissible means, except in this issue of sexual immorality, that that exception clause would also apply to the remarriage. That it's except in this way, divorce is not good, and remarriage, except in this way, is not good. That you have to have one to have the other. That that exception covers both. So when you have a, a marriage that is ended in, in a, you know, in adultery, in a divorce because of that, and you were the non-offending spouse, that there would be a moment where remarriage then could be open to you. Okay, now here's the other grounds. Let's play this one out. It's an unbeliever and a believer who have married, and the, the unbeliever has said, I'm out. I'm out of this marriage. In that case, you know, the way Paul says it, he says, you're not enslaved if you're the believer in that way. I think the word enslaved would mean that that would also turn the key for a biblically permissible divorce in that scenario. So you have to have biblical grounds for divorce to have biblical grounds for the remarriage. That's the, the quick way to summarize it. So now let me just say this again. Although there seems to be means in the Bible for divorce and for remarriage, there, seem, there, there seems to be two grounds for both. Although there seems to be that in the marriage, it is never required. It's never the most desirable. We, we want to be a church who fights for marriages, who does everything we can to uphold the reasons. In this passage, Jesus says, you should stay in it. It's, it's about telling the truth about Jesus. You're getting a chance in the context of your marriage to show the never dying, always pursuing, never stopping love of Jesus in the way that you would pursue and ask the Lord for miracles in the context of your marriage. Now, let me take a moment to apply this to our church. Take a moment to just work some, some of the various categories of people in the room. And let me first apply this to singles in the room. If you are single in the room, never been married, never been divorced, you're, you're single in that way. First of all, if you're single in the room, never been married, hear me on this. I want to tell you a couple of things. Number one, it's imperative that you develop, I mean, like deep in your soul, God's view of marriage. That you have bought into and believe God's view of marriage. That you believe that it's about telling the truth about Jesus. Not just getting your little personal needs met about your personal fulfillment. That your marriage is primarily about telling the truth about Jesus. You need to believe that. Secondly, if you're single and you're praying that the Lord would open up and gift you a marriage someday, you need to make sure that the girl or guy you're into loves Jesus. Doesn't just admire Jesus, doesn't just carry a Bible around when you're around to, to kind of convince you that he loves or she loves Jesus, but he loves Jesus. She loves Jesus. And hear me, this is just some friendly advice for free. Don't trust yourself in that. Because you're real liable to think in really dumb ways in that moment. So don't trust yourself. Let me plead with you. Get, get that person that you're interested with around community that loves you, will love him, and can look at both of you and say, man, I would affirm that this guy or this gal loves Jesus. And look at him and say, I would affirm that she or he loves Jesus. This would be a great thing. But make sure you get that around good community that can affirm that. And lastly, whoever you're into, make sure that their view of marriage corresponds to God's view of marriage. That they have bought into marriage is not just about their little personal needs, but it's about the glory of God and the display of the gospel. And you know why that's so important? Your marriage is going to hit a rocky patch at some point where it's just hard. And when it gets hard, if you have not bought into God's view of marriage, guess what they're gonna do? Run. 
That's what they're going to do. I heard one guy illustrate it with the movie, He's Just Not That Into You. I hope you haven't watched it. If you have, a confessional booth is right over there when we finish. I'm joking, by the way. But one character says this, what if you meet the love of your life, but you're already married to someone else? Should you just let that person pass you by? That's a great question if you're not a Christian and you believe your marriage is really about your little personal needs. It's a great question if that's where you are. It's a ridiculous question if you believe in God's view of marriage. See, if you're married and you believe in God's view of marriage, here's the way you should think about your marriage. I'm already married to the person that God has designed for me to be married to. I'm already married to the love of my life. Like my job now is to figure out what it looks like to die to myself so that I can actually love her as Christ loved the church. So I can actually love him like Christ loved the church. That's my job now. I'm already there. I'm already married to the person that God wants me to be married to. I'm already married to the love of my life. Now I've got to do the hard work of actually doing that. that that's where you are. So that's to the singles. If you're married, if you're married in the room and your marriage right now is good, can you just take a minute to thank God for that? I mean, you need to like look up to God right now and just say, thank you, Jesus. Because marriage is a little slice of heaven when it's going well, isn't it? It's a wonderful gift from God. And guys, if that's you, pursue your wife. Man, love your wife. Be tender to your wife. Set up an environment where your wife can flourish. If, if you are a wife, honor your husband. Pursue your husband. Forgive your husband. Set up an environment where your husband can flourish as a human being and as your husband. Man, run after them. And, and can I just say the most important thing you could think of when you think of your marriage is that your marriage is in good community. In my previous church, we had one of our Sunday school teachers who, I mean, just killing their Sunday school class. And they kill a lesson on one particular Sunday, and they announce the next Sunday that they're getting a divorce, and no one knew about it. That is crazy. Crazy. You need to make sure people know about your marriage. Do you know where divorce starts? In small little frustrations. And do you know when uh, marriage issues are so much easier to handle? when they're in small frustration little moments, not divorce moments. It's so much easier to handle them back there. So, so get your marriage in good community. If you're here today and your marriage, you know it is struggling. You are on the ropes and everyone hates everyone. If you're in that mode of like marriage is so hard right now, then first of all, just remind yourself, preach this to yourself. My marriage is not about my little wants being met. This marriage that God has given me is about telling the truth about Jesus. And the harder my marriage is, the better the opportunity that I can show people the never-dying, never-ending love of Jesus. So God, help me in this. So preach that to yourself first. But secondly, it is imperative that you let people in on that. If your marriage is struggling right now and no one else knows about it, you haven't invi invited anyone else in, you are troubling your own trouble. You are stiff-arming God's means of grace to help you in this moment. So if, if your marriage is struggling, you need to, to get people in. Before we leave here, we're going to have people at the prayer table. Make sure you, you get prayer. Find a home group leader. But you need to get your marriage under the authority of elders and pastors that want to be a means of grace to help you. Now to the divorced. If you are divorced in the room, man, I know that this is so sensitive. And I, gosh, I just, I'm praying that today in all of those wounds that you carry, that fresh grace would be poured into them from the Lord that you would know that we wanna be a culture who doesn't look down upon you, 
that doesn't think ill of you. You don't have like a scarlet thread in your life because of something you've done in your past, but we all need the grace of God. And I hope you experience that. Let me just address really briefly a couple of different categories of being divorced in the room. Category number one is you're divorced and you're single right now and you had biblically permissible grounds for the divorce on your side of it. In other words, you're, you're divorced and it's in a, you know, the grounds biblically were there for you to divorce. Maybe not your, your spouse, but for you to divorce. If that's you, I, I wanna just remind you of this. And I know this is so hard to believe if that's where you're sitting right now. But I'm just praying that the Lord would help you see that Jesus is enough to sustain you in your singleness the unique burdens that come along with singleness, that the Lord can sustain you right there in the midst of it. The second thing, and this is really, really important, if you're single and you're divorced with permissible grounds, therefore you can remarry at some point, and let's say you're to the point of desiring that. If that's you, it's very important you hear what I'm about to say. You need to get crystal clear in what the Bible says about divorce, and in particular, the means for remarriage after a divorce. Because our, there's such a gap theologically in our culture when it comes to this issue, it is very likely that you're going to meet a person and you're going to consider another marriage with that person. And rather than marrying that person, when you ask questions about their former divorce, you're going to have to look at that person and say, not only can I not marry you, but I actually need to encourage you to go back and reconcile to your former spouse. That conversation is going to need to happen. And if you're not crystal clear on the, the, the nuances of that conversation, you're not going to know to say it. And listen, it is no small thing to marry a person who God would say marriage is, like another marriage is not in their cards. Another marriage to their former spouse is in their cards. That is no small thing to skip over that and just marry them. That is a big thing. So you've got to get crystal clear on that. Secondly, if you're divorced and single and you did not have grounds, so you're divorced and single, but you shouldn't be. Like it broke, and it broke because of you, like your, your previous marriage. If that's you, I, I just want to open up and say this. There is grace for you. There is grace. And this would be a wonderful moment in your life, a decisive moment, when you own your failures in your marriage and you repent of those things. When you turn from those things and you turn to Jesus and run to Jesus and receive his grace that is fresh and new for you right now in this moment. And what a great moment. And part of what repentance is going to mean is that you not only own your sin, but you own your sin to all of those affected. Maybe that's a former spouse, kids, a former pastor, but to all of those you know, affected. And then you begin to pursue in appropriate ways a marriage to your former spouse. And then lastly, I want to just play this scenario out. You're divorced without grounds. It was not a biblically permissible divorce, but you've already remarried without grounds. What do you do then? To my knowledge, there has not been anyone who I've ever read that has said, you know what you should do? You should break your current marriage and then go back to your previous one. That, I've never heard anyone say that. So I think the principle of, of 1 Corinthians 7 is there. Remain as you are. But here are the next thing. If there has never been authentic repentance for that, this is the moment. Where you get to honestly lay your, your heart open before the Lord and you turn from that. You own that. And see, if your heart is interacting with that moment like this, uh, you know, man, I am so thankful. I had no idea back then about divorce and remarriage and like what the Bible says. I'm so glad I got through all that. Now I'm married. Now I'm all happy. Now I can just go about my life. If that's your heart, it is revealing something is wrong with your heart. See, I think this should be our heart in that moment if this is you. Our heart should be to look back and to say to God, 
I have sinned against you in the way that I've operated in, in the divorce and the remarriage. I've sinned against you in all of that. I didn't know, and it's sinful negligence that I didn't know that. I've totally run over what you say about these issues, and I've totally lived life my own way. And Lord, I'm sorry for that. I, I, I regret that I'm sorrowful for that. I mean, there, there should be honest confession about that. And there should be a seek to restore every relationship that's been broken along that way. And lastly, if you're divorced in the room, in my experience, there is deep guilt and shame that nags that person. So if that's you, you, you probably deal with that guilt and shame on a daily basis. Anytime it comes up like this. And I just want to encourage you, the only way I know through that guilt and shame is Jesus. Honest repentance before the Lord and receiving grace fresh again today. Which leads us to this last thing and then we're done. Aren't we grateful that, that God redeems divorce? Aren't we grateful for that? Like any other sin, divorce is redeemable. And the Bible has a whole book in it that shows us just how redeemable divorce is. Y'all know the book of Hosea? Here's the storyline of the book of Hosea. Hosea come, or God comes to Hosea and says, Hosea, I want you to marry Gomer. Here's the problem. She is a prostitute. Hosea takes a deep breath and he says, I'm in. I'll do it. He buys her out of prostitution and he marries her. And then he wakes up one day and Gomer's gone. She's gone again and she's back into prostitution. And the Lord comes to him again and says, Hosea, I'm not done yet. I want you to go get her again. And Hosea takes a deep breath and he goes again, buys her out of prostitution and marries her again. Now that book of the Bible, Hosea, is not in there to highlight Hosea and Gomer. Do you know who it's in there to highlight? God and us. That's who it's meant to highlight. It's meant to show us this is how God relates to us in all of our spiritual adultery, that God pursues us in our prostitution. God pursues us in our stiff arms to him. God never stops pursuing us. That's what it's meant to show us. Now, I love how one set guy says it. He says, even if your marriage covenant was broken in the past, if you're in Christ, rest assured that the eternal marriage covenant is still intact. Aren't we grateful for that? I'm going to end with this quote from a guy named Kevin DeYoung. Talking about divorce and remarriage, he says it like this. To those who have sinfully divorced, to those who, whose sin caused the divorce, to those who are now remarried when you shouldn't be remarried, here's the answer. And this is really the answer for every one of us in the room today. Run to the cross. It's no light thing to tear asunder what God joined together. It's no small mistake to pursue an adulterous second marriage. But God's grace is not light and it is not small. Thank the Lord. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. There is mercy yet for you. But the contrition must be real. The admission of guilt must be honest. The repentance must be earnest. A broken heart and a contrite spirit the Lord will never deny. So run to God. Plead with God. Know his adopting love and experience his justifying and free grace. And here's why. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood, thank God, lose all their guilty stains. Amen? Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.